Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're ready to study the word under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is the uh, prime uh, agent for spiritual growth, in the church age, we are filled with the Spirit. He fills us with God's Word. When we sin, that ministry is quenched. And when we confess our sins, then it is restored. We recover it so that we can go forward. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to study your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we study your word, it enables us to think within a framework of biblical truth, the thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ, your thinking, that which conforms to reality. Father, as we continue to study in the details related to the collapse of the uh, kingdom under Solomon and the eventual dissolution of the kingdom in Israel. We pray that we might be able to see the uh, principles that are here that apply across the board universally to other nations, uh, even though the distinct details here are, are those that relate uh, only to Israel because of the land promise. Now, fathers, we study, help us to correlate these things with biblical truth in both the Old Testament and New Testament we can see how these things apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're down around verse 14. Down around verse 14, dealing with God's discipline on Solomon and on Israel because of Solomon's leadership. Last time I pointed out that the discipline that we have here is announced by God directly to Solomon. It is not mediated through a prophet. This distinguishes Solomon from all of the other kings. Not that Solomon is not under the authority of a prophet, but because of God's unique plan for Solomon, because of the unique way in which God blessed Solomon, Solomon had a direct revelation from God who appeared to him twice uh, previously, and in this chapter, even though it does not state that God appears to him, God is directly revealing to him the 
discipline and the reason for the discipline that God is bringing upon Solomon because of his disobedience. As I pointed out in the previous uh, lessons, as we looked at Solomon's sin, I emphasize the fact that the sin of Solomon is not just a, or as it's often portrayed, restricted to a sexual sin. It is really a sin of internationalism related to his unwillingness to trust in God to provide security for Israel. So at one level, it is a challenge to the authority of God for the nation Israel, that Solomon is no longer looking to God as the ultimate authority and the one who ultimately provides security for the nation. And even though we do not live in a nation that has a direct contract with God as Israel did, we still recognize that in our lives and in the lives of, uh, in the life of our nation, that we ultimately still look to God as the one who provides security and stability. And security and stability for us in terms of uh, a nation in the church age always relates back to the divine institutions. And I've been giving a little thought to uh, these divine institutions in the last several months, especially in this election year, and I'm planning to do a series sometime later in August or September related to decision-making in the voting booth and tying it, to, um, tying it to the divine institutions because that's really the foundation for thinking critically about anything going on in history because whenever we look at history, whether you're talking about American history, whether you're talking about Jewish history, whether you're talking about What's going on in Russia with this uh, incursion, this attack on uh, Georgia the last few days and how that affects uh, things? Uh, very astute observation that was made by Stratfor. If you're not familiar with it, Stratfor.com is an intelligence site on the Internet, and they made an astute observation today that this is not an indication that uh, the balance of power is shifting in Europe, it is an indication that the balance of power has already shifted in Europe because the Russians could do this because the U.S. is tied up in Afghanistan and in Iraq. We're stretched too thin. Uh, Europe is stretched too thin, and they are in an anti-war uh, position. And so this creates a vacuum internationally in which uh, the Russian bear can reassert itself uh, internationally, and by attacking Georgia, they are sending a message to all of the other breakaway uh, republics that broke away from the Soviet Union back in the early 90s. And this has tremendous implications for the Baltic states as well as Ukraine and uh, the other uh, Islamic republics that broke away. So this is something to pay attention to, and we're I have no idea where things are going, but we can analyze these things on the basis of the Word of God. And so that always gives us a universal framework for analyzing and understanding and to some degree interpreting uh, history. It's always a, a dicey thing to try to interpret what's going on around you when you're living through it. We just don't, you, you have to have a certain distance and perspective. 
And a lot of times we think certain things are happening, and then five or ten years down the road, uh, we realize, no, that really wasn't quite what was going on at all. So we need to have some perspective. But it also helps us whenever we're analyzing uh, people who are running for political office. And when you look at the situation we have today with uh, the presidency up for grabs because there's no incumbent vice president or president running that uh, we have all the various things that have been going on in, in the reaction and the uh, division that's been occurring in this country for really, I think, the last 20 years, things have become more and more divided between uh, conservatives and Republicans. And all of this has to do with very basic understanding of the, the nature of society, the nature of government, the nature of the relationship between individuals and the government. And whenever you talk about any of these things, you cannot escape the religious implications. Now, people want to act like you can somehow get involved in uh, government without bringing, quote, religion, unquote, into the discussion. But any time you're talking about anything within God's creation, you have to talk about it in terms of how God created it and what God established. Otherwise, you're just making it up as you go along, no matter how much uh, there may be elements of truth in any position or any analysis. The only thing that gives us a true orientation to reality as it is is the revelation of God. And so we always have to start with fundamental things in Scripture. So I've been uh, giving this some thought lately and I'm wrestling with uh, an idea that's sort of floating around the uh, in my gray cells trying to think through something a little more precisely. I'm not sure I'm there yet, but I thought I'd at least float a trial balloon tonight. When we talk about the divine institutions, there's five divine institutions which we have historically talked about. Historically, not just in terms of my ministry in the church, but these have been, even though it may not have been systematized quite this clearly over the last uh, three or four hundred years, you can go back and see clear discussions on each of these in the post-Reformation writings, especially among uh, many of the Puritans in their writings related to uh, the re revolt against Charles I and the overthrow of the Stuart monarchy and the rise of, of Cromwell's Republic and the writings in, that took place in uh, North America among these same Puritans. They were, showed that Christians were thinking uh, very deeply and profoundly about the implications of God's word for social relationships and government, and you can't distinguish those things. There is a school of thought today that somehow uh, government doesn't need to address social issues, but if you examine the divine institutions, the first three are clearly related to social issues, and so you can't separate these two. There's some people who think, well, you know, the government's job isn't to address certain things related to morality. And while it's true you can't enforce a morality, all law is fundamentally based on some sort of uh, moral or ethical code. And so you can't separate the two. They're, they're are, they are integrally uh, linked together. And so there was this understanding in the, um, in the Puritan era, and there was a lot of thought that went into this, 
and we can break these these five divine institutions down into uh, these categories. We've talked about them before, so I'm just going to briefly review them. First of all, it's individual responsibility, and with each of these, uh, with each of these, there is an authority uh, associated with it, and especially the first three. In the individual responsibility, every individual is responsible to God. And this is established at the beginning of the creation when God created Adam, placed him in the garden, and told him that from the tr- they, that he could eat from anything in the garden except for the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And if he ate from that tree in disobedience to God, then there would be immediate consequences which were identified as death, and we know that that was spiritual death. So you have individual responsibility. So that must be protected. That is the most fundamental issue in dealing with any kind of social relationships are individual responsibility. Man is responsibility for is responsible for the decisions he makes. He's responsible for taking care of himself, providing for himself. And as part of this, we have the development of the concept of private property, private ownership of property, private responsibility for what one earns and makes. And so whenever you get into systems of government, see this will all relate up to to each level as you go uh, up the divine institution chain that the more you um, you try to spread that responsibility out you, and get into various forms of collectivism whether they're modern whether they're modern forms of marxism or socialism or whether they're just ancient forms of tyranny ancient forms such as the the uh, the deity, the divinity of the Egyptian pharaoh, where the pharaoh owned all the land, the pharaoh owned everything, all the means of production, all the fruits of production, everything ultimately was owned by the pharaoh, not by the people. This violates individual responsibility, and so you have uh, problems there. Uh, the second divine institution is marriage. And marriage is defined in Scripture and defined by God in terms of the marriage of one man and one woman. This excludes polygamy. It excludes uh, any kind of marriage between members of the same sex. And it uh, does away with in any kind of, of uh, other situations where you try to uh, do away with the core element of one man and one woman with the man in the leadership role. He is the one who is responsible to God. And that because the, it is the, the marriage itself that is the training ground for the next generation, that really becomes clear and is, is developed more when you get into the book of Deuteronomy as God spells this out for the Israelites, that it is the responsibility of the parents to train the children. It's not the responsibility of the government or of government schools. It's not the responsibility of the church and Sunday school at the church. It's the responsibility of every every parent to train the children. It is in that context of the real-life situations and circumstances that every family faces that parents have the responsibility to communicate and to teach how the Word of God applies to every single situation in life. And this is how the truth is passed on from one generation to another. And once you have anything else coming in to interfere with that, then it ultimately leads to a breakdown. So once you get away from the divine institution of marriage, 
then society will begin to break down. So if you violate individual responsibility and accountability, society starts to break down. Uh, You get a breakdown of marriage, society will start to break down. If you get a breakdown of family, the third divine institution, then society starts to break down. Now, those three divine institutions are different from the next two that we studied because they're all established in principle before the fall, before there's ever any sin, and there is this embedded authority in each of those uh, institutions. And by institution, we mean something that is established by God that is necessary and that is embedded within the way he makes man as a social creature. And you can distinguish that between, uh, for example, let's say a convention. Uh, you can have uh, various ways in which different cultures do things, how they prepare food, how they uh, pr- provide for families, how they do certain things, how they celebrate marriages. All of these things are just culturally relative. But the institution itself is something that can't be uh, changed or you will have a complete breakdown of, of, of society and a disintegration of the, uh, the national institution. And each of these has, a, has an authority. In, under, under individual responsibility, the authority is God. In marriage, the authority is the husband. And in family, the authority uh, is the collective unity of the parents, not the children. And that's, we see a real breakdown in all of these areas. And if you notice, at the core of every one of these things is this concept of authority, which always takes us back to the key issue in the angelic conflict, is whether or not we're going to submit to the authority of God and take him at his word that things need to be done a certain way. So that's the first three divine institutions. The next two that we have uh, talked about are established after the flood, when there's a major shift in uh, the way human history is conducted. And the first has to do with the institution of human government, which comes out of the Noahic Covenant. And uh, human government is established, and judicial authority is delegated to man, primarily in the area of capital punishment. And this is the most difficult and the most extreme uh, situation and responsibility that man has judicially. And so the establishment of that... Uh, by uh, a fortiori argument, establishes all of the other types of judicial decisions. So man is responsible now for adjudicating his own uh, circumstances and his own situations and disagreements as well as criminality. That comes out of the Noahic Covenant, and that covenant is applies to all human beings throughout all time. Now, you have uh, at the, in the Noahic covenant there was also a responsibility given, and that responsibility that was given is the responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were to scatter, they were to spread out, but man rejected that uh, mandate from God, and instead of obeying God and scattering over the face of the earth, man unified in rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel is not simply a political statement, but it is also a religious statement. And that um, is what hangs 
together all the way through various attempts of man in, inter, in forms of internationalism to try to uh, orient himself to, or to disobey God and orient himself clearly within just a temporal framework. Man thinks that everything is within this uh, closed system on the earth and that man can control his destiny and, and his future. And I pointed out last time that this is indicated even today that with at the UN, and I didn't get the pictures, but a number of people sent me some great pictures uh, last week of the uh, inscription at the UN building from Isaiah chapter 2. But all of this ties together in terms of internationalism. That's where uh, Solomon breaks down because what he's trying to do is to provide security and stability for his for Israel apart from God and by relying upon man. Now, I covered all of that last time. But one of the things that has always sort of flitted around in my head, not that that means anything, is that is that the last of the divine institutions? There seems to be something else because we've gone since the Tower of Babel without the establishment of another divine institution and there are some significant things that have happened since approximately 2500 B.C. And so we have to be careful, though. There have been people who suggested that the church is a divine institution, and that doesn't quite work. Others have suggested other forms of that. But what we have in common between the in all of the first five is that these have been established by God as integral integral societal working principles that are uh, true for everyone, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. And that's important to understand because even unbelievers or societies that aren't built on uh, the truth of God's word or just have a minimal witness if, uh, from the scriptures or from in the Old Testament, if they have an understanding of individual responsibility an understanding of marriage and family and uh, government, and these things are working together, and they understand that God has established nations and national boundaries, then uh, they can have a measure of stability and security because they recognize those things. And so when you come to trying to identify a Sixth, the divine institution in terms of the church or something distinctly Christian, something related to grace. Uh, one suggestion was made relating to Revelation that somehow this has, has to be true for everyone. And I was knocking this around with a friend of mine the other day, and it occurred to me that this has to come out of the Abrahamic covenant, and it has to do with Israel. Because God embedded in the Abrahamic covenant a statement that relates to every nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And so God instituted this distinction of Israel in the Old Testament and that it would be through Israel that God would communicate his word to all mankind. And so there is an uh, an establishment there of, of Israel as a unique and distinct people of God that are to, and they are to be held distinct and how the rest of humanity treats them is going to have an effect on how those nations uh, survive, whether they are stable or not. And in the Old Testament, even though God raised up nations like Babylon 
and Assyria and some other nations that would come in to defeat Israel because they succumbed to hatred for Israel and they succumbed to anti-Semitism. In the process, God also punished them. But that's not related to their immorality or morality. It's not related to their belief or trust in God. It's related to how they treated Israel. And so this this important distinction of Israel as the path of divine blessing and grace and God's provision in the angelic conflict and that that Israel is unique in this way because even in, when we get into the tribulation period as we, as we study uh, in the book of Revelation, that even when we get into the end times, God is going to re- restore Israel to the land and he is going to fulfill all of those promises. And so this fits the criteria, at least uh, so far that I've thought this through, fits the criteria that this applies to every nation, every people group throughout all of history, that God is going to deal with them and their social stability and their survival as a nation is going to not only be related to how they deal with these other divine institutions, but also how they relate to Israel and by extension we could say how they relate to God's word. Because Israel, as we see in the New Testament, is the custodian of God's word and God's revelation. So this is why you can come into the church age and you can look at different nations and see how God blesses them because on the one hand they are uh, positive to Israel, they are, they bless Israel rather than curse Israel, but they also have as a, as a nation or culture a positive orientation to the revelation that comes through Israel. And the way that applies is that these nations uh, then are, uh, are, resp- are they're, they're evangelistic, they're sending out missionaries, and because of that, God uh, prospers those particular nations. So there's a distinction there uh, between Israel as a, covenant nation to God and other nations, tribes, or people groups. We have to be careful, I think, with that term nation because a nation in post-enlightenment, in the post-enlightenment world is very different from a lot of different nations or tribal groups that you have prior to that. But God seems to raise up these groups in relationship to their attitude towards God's people and the revelation that they are primarily uh, responsible for. So that's something that we can think about. I'm sure that will generate some good discussion uh, with everybody over the next uh, few months. But I'm just I'm, I'm kind of thinking that through. So I thought, well, I'd throw up that trial balloon and see who shoots it down. But this helps us to understand what is happening, too, in the background and... Um, 1 Kings 11, that, that Solomon has rejected God as the king of the nation and by intermarrying with the uh, daughters of the royal families and aristocracy in the surrounding nations, he has opted for reliance upon man and human uh, conventions for security. 
and God is going to punish him because God is the head of the nation Israel. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me, and this is a both a political and a spiritual statement. And by rejecting God and by intermarrying with these the uh, aristocratic households of the surrounding nations and bringing their religions, their gods and goddesses, into into Israel, what Solomon is doing is that he is rejecting that revelation from God, that truth from God that his nation Israel is the is the custodian of, and so God needs to discipline uh, Solomon. But we see his grace even in the midst of judgment because of the obedience of his father David. So that we came, went through the analysis last time of, Sol, of the Lord appearing to Solomon, that he is going to tear the kingdom away from him in verse 11. That same imagery of tearing the kingdom away was used by Samuel when Samuel confronts Saul after Saul's disobedience and saying God is going to tear the kingdom away from him. And, and he uh, emphasized that, Samuel emphasized that by tearing his robe. So you have that same imagery here. Now God then is going to bring in to bear this divine discipline on on Israel because of what Solomon did. But Solomon was the leader, and so it's not just because Solomon got involved in idolatry, but the people followed his leadership. And so we'll see in this passage that the people have rejected God as well. They have followed the leadership of Solomon, and they have succumbed to idolatry and the worship of all of these uh, national gods, so God, national gods from these other uh, these other surrounding countries. So what what we've seen in our study in Revelation on Sunday mornings, as we look at Romans chapter one, is that divine discipline operates within two different spheres. The one sphere is what we might identify as sort of a natural cause and effect relationship in in terms of bad decision, decisions. The you will reap what you sow principle that we make certain bad decisions and the consequences for those bad decisions are destructive and harmful. And often we can go back and say, well, the reason that this happened is because I made these really stupid, foolish, carnal, sinful decisions. But there are times when we make the same sinful, stupid, carnal decisions and nothing happens. That's the grace of God. In discipline, God can choose out of his grace to completely... uh, remove the punishment, and we confess our sins, and God in his grace decides not to lower the boom, or God decides to limit or minimize the discipline so it's not as harsh as it could have been. We see this with both Solomon here and with his father David. David had committed at least two capital crimes, crimes where he, under the Mosaic Law, should have been given the death penalty for adultery, and also for conspiring to have uh, Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, murdered. For those, he should have been uh, executed according to the Mosaic Law, but God uh, commuted that sentence, and, but in its place there was a fourfold discipline that came into David's life. So he didn't get away with it. God didn't completely remove the discipline. He minimized it. With Solomon, he, Solomon also, because he introduces the 
uh, worship of Moloch, which is specifically stated in Deuteronomy to be a capital crime. Uh, nevertheless, God doesn't have him executed, but he is going to minimize the punishment out of grace and out of uh, his God's care for David and all that David had done. So Solomon recognizes or sees that he is dealt with in terms of grace. That's spelled out in verse uh, verse 13, uh, 12 and 13, where God said, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David. So twice he emphasizes that that relationship with David is the reason that Solomon is not going to experience this uh, division in his lifetime. So we see that God uses these normal consequences, and they may or may not develop into something. That's the contingency in human history, and the activation of that contingency is going to be dependent upon uh, the sovereign will of God. So we have normal consequences, and then the other category would be divine intervention, such as the plagues in Egypt or the end-time judgments in the tribulation period. This is where God uh, God enhances the judgment in ways that only God can do it, and it's very clear that these judgments are coming directly from God. Now, this divine discipline toward Israel that is going to begin in this chapter is based on something else as well, and that is the legal, uh, the legal uh, conditions that are laid down in the Mosaic Law. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14, you see the beginning of the uh, description of the five stages or the five cycles of divine discipline on Israel. But this precedes that. What we see here is that God is going to raise up adversaries and it's interesting, the term that is used for adversary here is the Hebrew word shatan, which is where we get the word Satan. It means an adversary or an opponent or an accuser. And so God is going to raise up these specifically three enemies. Now, if I didn't believe in literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, and I was one of these uh, preachers who was always trying to find some... Uh, hidden text, or we're going to find some third level of meaning in here, then I would say, see, this is talking about Satan, and all of this really talks about Satan and spiritual warfare. And just like Israel, we have three enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil, and then I would start talking about that. That's what a lot of churches do. But see, you can't do that because that's, the text isn't talking about spiritual warfare. There may be certain parallels that people might see, but you have to let the text define what is what the interpretation is, and that then narrows the application. So the text is not talking about Satan. The text is not talking about spiritual warfare. The text is talking about God is, is going to use both external enemies and internal enemies to discipline Israel. And these, the rise of these external enemies is specifically attributed to God. We look at verse 14. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. It is God who is the agent who raises up these three adversaries. Uh, Hadad, who is, 
and uh, Edomite, and then he raises up Zobar, Syria in the north, and internally he's going to raise up Jeroboam. But God is the one who is behind this. Now, what we see is that that these three individuals all have a um, all have some historic problems with the house of David, with uh, the way David defeated Edom and the way David defeated Zobah. And matter of fact, it goes all the way back to Saul. There are historic problems here. But God has contingency here. If, if Solomon had been obedient to God, then God had promised him that it would be through his line that God would bring blessing. That was that condition. And a condition implies contingency. And this is one of the great things to see in Scripture is that on the basis of our, our recognizing the reality of human responsibility, God, God's plan and his administration of his plan in history is uh, of such grandeur that it is not uh, limited uh, by human decisions and it's not limited by God having his own set uh, plan and only this and this one thing is going to happen. God has built into the history of mankind real contingency based on human volition. So that if man disobeys, certain things happen. If man obeys, other things will happen. And these are uh, real contingencies. And God in his omniscience knows all that can take place, all that will take place, but all that could take place. This is why Jesus, when he talks about or he's condemning uh, Capernaum because they have rejected the miracles that uh, he that have been performed there and all that they have seen. And he says, you know, it's better for uh, those in Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you because of the witness that you saw. And he understands that, and in making that statement, he says, if Tyre and Sidon had seen what you have seen, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So God in his omniscience knows what uh, the what-ifs of history, what could have happened, what might have happened, and when man disobeys, then that enacts another uh, a, another um, path in history. It could have been different. Solomon could have done it differently, but he didn't. There is God has built history in such a way that it allows for a certain amount of flexibility based on human volition. But because of Solomon's negative volition, his disobedience, God is going to cause these three to be able to develop power. If Solomon had been disobedient, then God would not have allowed them to develop power. It's not fate. That is a pagan notion. It is not uh, inevitable. It is not written in the stars. There is real flexibility under the sovereign authority of God. And that's always difficult for people to put those two things together. Uh, and there's always that historic argument in Christianity as to whether God is sovereign or man has volition. And the reality is that this shows that both can be true, that when we understand God's sovereignty to be so large and so great that it's not restricted by human volition, but it allows for the flexibility and God still works out his purposes uh, despite human decisions, 
then that makes God's sovereign authority even even greater. So we read that the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He's of the royal line in Edom, whether he is a direct descendant of the last king in Edom or whether he is simply in the broader royal family. He does have at least an extended claim uh, to the throne in Edom. And in verse 15 we read, For it came about when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain, and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab, verse 16 is a parenthesis, for Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, while Hadad was a young boy. The uh, italics there indicate that this isn't in the text, although there is an implication of that in the text. Now, the background for this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 8. In fact, the background for both of these situations with Hadad and with Rezin uh, are found in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8. Situations that occurred under David... When David was making the right decisions and being blessed by God in terms of his victory over the enemies of Israel. But the result of that was that it generated this hostility among those he defeated. But it's not necessary, it's not inevitable that they're going to rise up in rebellion against Solomon or a later descendant. But because they are there and they have this uh, resistance, this hostility, this resentment toward uh, the house of David, God is going to raise them up and use them for divine discipline against uh, Solomon. So turn over to, hold your place here, and turn over with me to Second uh, Samuel chapter 8. We're going to take this, in Second Samuel 8, the writer of Samuel deals with the defeat of Hadadezer, the son of Rehab, king of Zobah, in verse 3. And he doesn't deal with uh, the situation in uh, Edom until uh, later on in the chapter down in verse 14. Verse 13 and 14, we read, So David made made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 And then it says in the New King James Version, Syrians in the Valley of Salt. And in your, if you've got a New American Standard, it probably reads 18,000 Arameans. There's a textual problem there, and I'll show you about that in a minute. And he, he defeats them in the Valley of Salt. Now, the ancient name for the Dead Sea is the Salt Sea because of its enormous salt content. You can go down to the Dead Sea and float and you can't sink. It's impossible to sink. You just lay back there and and, uh, and float on the water. Well, let's look at the map here. Here's the salt sea here, the Dead Sea, which, by the way, is dropping. It doesn't look like that anymore. You can almost walk across it here. It loses about 45 feet uh, in of water every year. And that's a serious problem because so many uh, the Jordanians and the Israelis are taking so much water out of the Jordan River for irrigation that the water level in the Dead Sea is dropping very 
uh, very rapidly. But down in this area to the south of the Dead Sea, this area, the, the green shaded area over here on the left is Ju- the tribal allotment for Judah. The area that goes further south is called the Negev, which is the Hebrew word for south. It's barren wilderness desert down at the very tip is Kadesh Barnea, which is the entry point into the land from uh, Numbers where the Israelites failed when they sent out the ten spies into the land. And the area to the uh, to the east of there, towards the uh, area south of the Dead Sea, this is the area referred to as the Arabah, A-R-A-B-A-H, the Arabah. And Edom is the territory to the east of the Arabah. And as you see here on the map, they have one of their cities indicated here, the city of Basra. And you also have the city of Petra located there. This is the area of Edom. Now, the text in 1 Samuel 8, uh, 13 says that David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 8,000 Syrians or Arameans. Now, Aram, if you look at this map, is all the way up here to the northeast of Israel. It's northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It's up in the area of modern Syria. It extends all the way up here to the uh, north of Damascus and the uh, northeast of Damascus. So why would David be fighting Arameans way down south here, south of the Dead Sea? And according to First Kings chapter 11... This has to do with uh, Joab killing all of these Edomites. Well, the problem is that you have a textual problem that a scribe uh, missed something. As you see on the screen, the first word here are, is composed of the three, letter, the three letters in Hebrew, the Aleph, Resh, and Mem for Aram. The Hebrew word over here to the right is the Hebrew word for Eden. It's an Aleph, a Dalit, and a Mem. The, the middle, it's that middle consonant that's the problem. Can you see the difference between the two? It has to do with these two letters down here I've put at the bottom, and the difference is just that little bitty uh, tick off the top. That's called a tittle. When Jesus said every jot and tittle, that's what he was talking about, is even the, the it makes a huge difference. Uh, just, just think of the difference between run and pun and bun and done. Uh, these are all words, letters, that, that the, just a little part of the letters are run and pun. You just have that little leg on the R. makes a complete difference in the word. And so... Uh, how you under, see these things, and if a scribe, scribe is copying, he can very easily misidentify uh, the word because in ancient Hebrew there were no vowel points, and many of the some of the modern uh, modern texts all have vowel points, but some of them insert a, a, another consonant in Edom, uh, but th- that's uh, not related to a more ancient script, so it's. Very light. It's it's pretty demonstrable that what you have here in First Samuel, Second Samuel eight thirteen, is a textual problem, 
And David made himself a name or a reputation when he returned from killing 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of the Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. See, it's talking about Edom in the context. And throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. See, he put Joab down there in order to establish these fortifications uh, throughout Edom. And all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Now, this had been a historic problem in dealing with the Edomites. There had been a hostility there ever since the conquest. Of course, the Edomites have their origin in Esau. The term Edom is a term that means red, and they trace their lineage back. They are first cousins of the Jews. They trace their lineage back to Esau, And, of course, that famous situation where uh, Esau comes back from hunting and he's tired and he's exhausted, he's worn out, and he's starving. And dear old brother Jacob, the uh, heel grabber, the uh, one who's always ready to twist things to his advantage, uh, Jacob has a a good uh, stew of red lentils cooking on the stove. And uh, Jacob was a good cook, and and Esau comes in and he starving to death, and he doesn't care what the deal is. When Jacob uh, barters for the, for the lentil soup, uh, Esau is ready to sell his birthright and trades his birthright, part of his inheritance, for the stew, the red lentil stew. So he becomes uh, gets this nickname of Edom. And so that name is applied to the territory where his, where his descendants lived. And this goes back to Genesis 25, verse 30, and Genesis 36, uh, 1, 8, and 19. Uh, The uh, territory of Edom was also known as Seir, S-E-I-R, because that is the most prominent geographical feature there, Mount Seir. Now, we look at this episode with, uh, with Solomon. There is... In verse 19, Hadad the Edomite is a descendant of the king, the royal family in Edom. Uh, The name Hadad is probably a royal name or uh, the name of the dynasty or the household. We talk about the current royal family in England is the House of Windsor. You go back in British history, you have the uh, Tudors, you have the Stuarts, uh, you have these different dynasties, these different household names. You go back to Roman history, you have the Caesars, and even though they're not all all related, that is the title of of the position. And so it seems that Hadad is that type of position. The term Hadad is used in reference to the Edomite kings as early as Genesis chapter 36, verse 35. It's interesting that it is also the name of a Syrian deity, uh, meaning the thunderer. Now, remember, in Canaanite religion, you have Baal, who is the god of thunder. In Greek mythology, you have Zeus, who is the god of thunder and lightning, and you have this same type of god or same type of deity in many of the ancient uh, mythologies in the ancient pantheons because it's related to bringing uh, water and moisture. It's the storm god, and so it's the male god of fertility. And so the uh, royal household in Edom 
has picked up the name of Hadad as a part of the name, just as you have in many of the names of the rulers in in Israel, many others in Israel, you have them with the last, uh, and the last name has the uh, Y-A-H ending like Uzziah, and this relates to uh, the first syllable name of Yahweh. So Hadad is more of a title than it is a personal name. And he is indicated this way because he is the, it appears, the last survivor in the royal family who has a connection to, to the throne. And so he leaves as a young uh, child. He's the, la- he's the grandson, actually, the last king in Edom. And he is going to uh, leave and go to uh, Egypt. He's going to take off, and we're told that uh, after this event, he escapes and takes some uh, Edomites with him and heads to Egypt. Now, the episode with um, just a, one couple of notes on the episode with Joab, verse 15 and 16. It happened when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he'd killed every male in Edom. He doesn't kill every male in Edom. The idea here is he's killing every male soldier in Edom. They are, uh, he's destroying them. He's, this is a misapplication by Joab. We studied Joab back at the beginning of our study of 1 Kings. He was an extremely bloodthirsty uh, general, and there were many times when he went outside of the law and killed when he should not have killed. And this is one of those examples. And so due to Joab's uh, disobedience and sinfulness and his bloodthirstiness, he creates this scenario that is going to eventually be used by God to bring discipline on Israel. And verse 16 notes that for six months Joab remained there until he'd cut down every male in Edom. So Hadad flees to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him, while Hadad was still a young child. Now this antagonism, as I pointed out a minute ago, this antagonism had gone on since at least the time of Saul, that when Saul took the kingdom over from Israel, he fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, uh, which is north of Edom, the sons of Ammon, which is north of Moab, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Now back to the map here, the kings of Zobah we'll run into in the, in the second adversary, but that's up in this area north of Damascus, and they are a branch of the Arameans. So there has been historical combat and antagonism between the Israelites and these nations who dominate the Transjordan area. Gee, sounds so contemporary. You've got the Syrians and the, all these Arab tribes, because that's who they are today, is the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites have all, were all basically overrun by the, by the Nabataeans and other uh, Arab tribes uh, from about the 4th century B.C. all the way up into the Islamic period. And so they've all basically intermarried and been assimilated into one basic uh, one basic group. Now, I want to give you a little bit of an idea of what this territory looks like. If we look at um, the Old Testament, 
and Edom, when the Jews are following uh, Moses into the promised land, they are going, they want to come along, or the attempt was to come from uh, Kadesh Barnea. I think I have a little, use the other map, has Kadesh Barnea on it. You come from Kadesh Barnea here. They wanted to come through Edom to come up on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. But the Edomites refused to let them come through their territory. They were afraid of them. This goes back to Exodus chapter 15. And I, it's just one of those things you just don't notice always. I was re- looking up, tracing through Edom as I go through Scripture, and in Exodus chapter 15, when you have Moses' song of victory, because God's delivered them as he's brought them through the Red Sea, he mentions in Exodus 15 that the kings of Moab and Edom are, are fearful and trembling because they have heard how God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. And so these, uh, these kingdoms, these powers on the, in the Transjordan area are scared to death of the Jews because of they know what God has done. Now remember, 40 years earlier, un, the, um, uh, the Jews had rejected the report of the two, the two spies, Caleb and Joshua, and they weren't going to trust God to go into the land because the Jews were afraid of the giants in the land and the fortified cities and all the people that were there. And they failed to realize that the people who were in the land were more afraid of them because they had already heard what had happened in Egypt. And so this is, just reinforces that. Well, the, under, under Moses, uh, the Edomites would not let them come across, so they had to come all the way to the south of the territory of Edom and go all the way around, and they came back somewhere right in this area. So Edom at, at the time of the Exodus is probably a little bit south of where it is on this map. It's not covering all the territory up to uh, Moab because in this area just south of where Basra is marked on the map there is the modern... Uh, site of Petra. And Petra is thought by some to be Basra. I mean, there's some debate among archaeologists whether they're the same site or whether they're a different site. Also, there is a reference in, uh, in the scriptures uh, later on to a uh, site or a city named Sela, S-E-L-A, which is another major city of the Edomites. And so there's some discussion just exactly where they where they were located, but this is not the friendliest and the uh, most attractive of areas. And I thought I would show you a little video that I took uh, last year. Uh, Mount Hor is located right there at Petra, and Mount Hor is where uh, Aaron died, and they buried Aaron on top of Mount Hor. And in this video, I'm going to show you where Mount Hor is. It's just you wonder how they got his body up there. Okay, let me uh, play this. I'm up on a ridge, and I'm looking north there, and I'm going to pan to the west, and we're overlooking in the distance the flat plain south of the Dead Sea. That's the Arabah, but in the foreground, this is what all the territory in Edom looks like, just a real hospitable area. You want to go looking for your sheep and goats there, don't you? Now, right here, let me pause this. Uh, right. Uh, stop it. Okay. Let me go back. 
can't figure out how I get it to listen to. There we go. I want to just back it up a little bit. There we go. This is Mount Hoare right here. And you can't, you can just barely make out just like a little, just a little bump right there at the very top of Mount Hoare. And this is a memorial that has been built up there for Aaron. This is the traditional burial site of Aaron on top of Mount Hor. So I'm curious as I read the biblical text, if it's anywhere around here, and I'm sure it is, and there's no reason to dispute this uh, location, but that was just, must have been one of the toughest things they did to carry that body in the funeral procession up to the top of Mount Hor. But this gives you a little bit of the idea of what uh, Edom looks like. And now the screen's going to pan back, pan back to the right. So that gives you an idea of what Edom looked like. So Hadad is upset. He wants to go fight for his land. That makes you wonder what kind of sense they had at that particular time to they want to fight for that kind of land, but nevertheless, that's what they did. So that gives us a, a little bit of an idea of background there. And he's going to escape down to Egypt. And in Egypt, verse 19, we read, And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, this is the same Pharaoh whose daughter is married to Solomon. So this Pharaoh is, um, hmm, where did that come from? Okay. Here we go. Uh, this is the same Pharaoh who who uh, gave his daughter to Solomon. So he's playing a fairly Machiavellian strategy here of playing off Hadad against uh, Solomon, and he's going to give his uh, sister-in-law to Hadad. Of course, this probably happened when Sol- before Solomon uh, ascended the throne because this thing with Hadad occurs when David is still king, so he's young. By the time Solomon uh, takes the throne, Hadad would be uh, much older, and he spent many, many years, uh, maybe two or three decades in Egypt. And verse 21 we read, So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, and the Joab, the commander of the army, was dead. Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. So he wants to go back. Pharaoh delays for a while. And um, in verse 23, or verse 22, rather, Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but let, do let me go anyway. Well, apparently some time went by before Hadad returned because his return and his uh, antagonism of Solomon does not occur until the last part of Solomon's reign, the last uh, probably 15 years, at least in the last 20-year period after Solomon has brought the nation into idolatry. So there's some uh, chronological issues there I don't think that anybody can re- resolve right now, but we'll come back next time and look at the uh, next adversary, which is very brief, and then we'll get into the key issue, which is Jeroboam's uh, revolt. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be, be reminded that you control history, and yet you have 
built into history and in our lives certain key principles, institutions, that depending on how we follow those, we can either have blessing, we can have stability, or we can have cursing and instability. Father, may we be challenged with the fact that we live in a world of tremendous instability today where we live in a culture and a world that has rejected truth, rejected you, and that very likely we could see some extreme discipline for our own nation in the coming years, and the only hope, the only stability is the truth in your word. Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.